Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Bang to Rights podcast. My name's Eleanor Shemba Critchley, and I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined by a special guest, Claire Sanderson, who's editor-in-chief at Women's Health magazine. Hi, Claire, and welcome to Bang to Rights. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, I'm also joined by a really special panel of MMU journalism students. They are Sidra, Ellie, Prue, Neve, and Alex, who will be asking questions. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Neve. Hi, I'm Prue. Hi, I'm Ellie. Hi, I'm Sidra. Claire's been speaking to our first and third year BA students this afternoon. We're recording this on Tuesday. And those stu students are still here with us now. Uh, so could you say hello to the Bang to Rights listeners, everyone? Hello. Now, in this episode, we're hoping to cover a range of issues, from equal pay at the BBC in the wake of the Samira Ahmed and Sarah Montague cases, and also have a look at some wider issues of gender diversity in the industry. But Claire, what about you? Tell us a bit about what you do at Women's Health magazine and how you got there. So I am the editor-in-chief of Women's Health. I work across the whole brand. I'm in charge of the whole brand. So it's not just the magazine, although I would say that's a, the core of the brand. And without that and the, and the strength that it offers the rest of the brand to... To, to thrive, I don't think Women's Health would be as successful as it is today, but I'm in charge of digital, social, all the content creators across print, um, and also events, product licensing, um, and the, the podcast. And I also, a big part of my job is revenue diversification. So a lot of my time is spent pitching to media agencies and big brands, convincing them to invest in Women's Health. And, and for listeners that aren't familiar with how you got there, can you summarise your journey to women's health? Absolutely. So I realised I loved writing, so I decided eventually that I wanted to be a journalist. I was very fortunate to get work experience on the Daily Mirror when I was studying for my degree in London. If I hadn't been studying in London, I wouldn't have been able to because I wouldn't have been able to, to afford to the rent to, to do work experience in London, but I was, I was studying um, nearby, so I managed to get myself work experience, and miraculously, and I still think it's a miracle, I got myself onto the Mirror Graduate Training Scheme, which is a hugely competitive training scheme, and somehow I managed to get on it, and I think it was because I showed such dedication to wanting to be a journalist, and I had a comprehensive cuttings portfolio, which at the time was stuck on paper with glue, uh, very different to, to some of the portfolios you see these days. Um, I stayed in newspapers, on national newspapers, for seven years, and then I went into to magazines where I worked um, at a magazine called Grazia, and another one called Look, and I worked my way up to acting deputy editor at Look, and then a brief stint back on the sun, and I landed at Women's Health three years ago. It's my absolute dream job because it marries my lifelong passion for health and fitness uh, with my years and years of experience as an editor. Um, one of the things that you've talked about today has been around looking at um, pay and access to the industry, mm. and, and that's something you've been looking at the Hearst Group across the board. Mm. Could you speak a little bit more about that and also people coming into the industry on an unequal footing? Yes. So I'm from a 
lower working class background and somehow I managed to get myself into a national newspaper newsroom where I was in the minority to be speaking with an accent like mine and to come from a, a background similar to mine and not that much has changed over the years. It is still an industry dominated by white middle-class people and in traditional newsrooms, largely men. Admittedly, in, in magazines, it's largely women, but the, the general thread is white and middle-class. And that has to change because how can we create content for our audience if our audience are not represented in our newsrooms? Things are changing. Um, a lot of big companies like CNN, like Reuters, like Financial Times, like Hearst have employed diversity inclusion managers who are putting strategies in place to broaden how they recruit um, into their organisations. At Hearst, we will be launching a scholarship scheme this year which across all our brands, which will pay for people to live in London while they're doing a, a four-week scholarship and also paying them the London living wage. It's only four weeks, it's not much, but it is a foot in the door. And I know from experience, it was that foot in the door at the mirror was the springboard for my career. And four weeks work experience, you can actually achieve a lot in that four weeks. So all power to Hearst for introducing the scheme and more details will be coming out this year. But I think it's a, it's a great step for Hearst to make and hopefully other organizations will follow suit. For students that want to follow up on that, where, where should they look? Because um, from our experience as tutors, when we've had final year students doing really well with interviews, mm. that the London factor and um, moving to a very expensive city has been a real problem. Oh, abso it absolutely is a problem. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it will be more details will come on the Hearst website. I can't give you an, a date. I will communicate with you as soon as I have that date. I tried to find one out this morning, um, but it hasn't been confirmed yet. So, um, and what will happen? It will be advertised on the Hearst main website and then in all the publications that are taking part. So it will be um, advertised on the uh, Mirror. Um, mirror talking about the mirror too much, uh, women's health, uh, social channels, imprint, etc. But I will communicate it to you as well as soon as I have a confirmed date of when we're going to start advertising it. That's great, thank you. And I just want to bring in my journalism colleague, Deborah Linton, to ask some questions around the Samira Ahmed yeah, case. So, thanks, Ellie. Um, thinking about the BBC rulings, the Samira Ahmed case and the Sarah Montague, um, so the ruling points to the fact that Samira Ahmed, they said, was up against a, a twinkle in an eye. She was up against so much. Um, I'm wondering, because you are very vocal and you are now in an organisation which is trying to set equal footing for all sorts of obstacles to this industry, and you've spoken a lot when you've spoken to our students about um, women yeah. getting on an equal footing, both in terms of representing themselves and the opportunities they have. Um, where do you think the industry needs to act now and against what time scale? So we cannot still be having these kind of rulings and this kind of situation in five years' time, for example. What measures can, get, can be put in place as far as you can see at an editorial level across organisations to ensure that we're combating this quickly now? Well, it, ha it has to happen quickly. And I think it is happening quickly. I think the... The tide was set by the, the BBC case. Hearst have done met benchmarking across their pay, both within its own team and, and across the industry. 
Um, and I, I just think the appetite is there now. I think the, it's a groundswell and it is gaining momentum. Um, <coughs> We, I sat on a, on a panel for the NCTJ about um, social mobility with, with a focus on women. So it's the, the appetite is there. Big companies are standing up and taking notice, and women are not taking this lying down. Women are starting to advocate for, not starting to because we have done, but are realising their worth and advocating that they are worthy. Um, and I, I, think it, I think it is happening. Um, will, will it happen quick enough? Remain to be seen. How? How can our women, our female students who are going into jobs now, advocate for themselves in a way? Because we talked about that line of, you know, stand up for yourself, mm. advocate for yourself, be polite, be deferential. What, yeah. what can they do to it? Firstly, believe in themselves. Absolutely believe in themselves. Before you even set foot in that building, know that you belong in that room you belong at that table you are no more you are no in you're not inferior just because of the sex that you were born in secondly when you go for the interview process which a lot of these young people here today be ultra prepared give them absolutely no reason not to give you that job be go in being so prepared you're going to blow everyone else out of the water and that self-belief will take you a long way. And then thirdly, when you're in an organisation, and if you are outnumbered by men, stand your ground, don't take any nonsense, and it still happens, you know, the banter, the inappropriate banter, don't stand for it, absolutely don't stand for it. And HR will have your back, whereas they maybe would not have some years ago. It was kind of taken as, oh, it's just lads being lads, bit of fun. HR will not stand for it now. So stand up for yourself. And when you join an organisation, start as you mean to go on. Don't take any nonsense. And if, any, if you experience anything, go to your HR manager because you will not be seen as a troublemaker. It will actually be seen as a strong woman standing up for themselves. Deborah, thank you for that question. Um, just a reminder that you're <clears throat> listening to Bang to Rights from the Journalism Department at Manchester Metropolitan University, and I'm Eleanor Shamba Critchley. And remember, you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang if you have any follow-up questions of your own or perhaps some comments on these issues, such as the gender pay gap or diversity in the industry. I'm really pleased now to hand over to our students who have some questions for Claire. Um, we're going to be starting with Alex. Um, you talk quite openly about mental health and try to raise awareness for it. Mm. Um, sorry if this is intrusive, but did your depression affect your ability to succeed during your time at university and your journalism career? Um, thank you. Good question. It's not intrusive because, as you are aware, I speak very, very openly about my mental health challenges and I will not stop doing so because when I do and I speak about it at length, Without fail, I have women coming up to me at the end, many often in tears, saying, I'm going through the same, or your story really struck with me. How can I get help? I'm not qualified to help them. I, what I do is try and point them in the right direction. I think it's made me a better person, a stronger person, a more de determined person. I think it's shaped who I am. I'm very proud of myself that I am someone that lives with low-level depression to this day, by the way, is that I respectfully disagree with the analogy that your mental health is like a broken leg that you can fix. You can't. You, you have to manage your mental health for the rest of your life. The way I manage mine is through limiting alcohol intake, limiting sugar. I'm very devoted to exercise and well-being and eating a plant-based diet, etc. But I even now have days where 
I end up in bed and I can't get out of bed. So the last time it happened was May last year and I ended up having to take time off work. Um, the way my depression presents itself, it is like someone has shot me with a tranquilizer. So somehow I managed, I got myself into work and I was literally falling asleep in conference when people were trying to pitch to me and my wonderful deputy editor, who is an absolute, you know, the ant to my deck kind of thing. She, uh, you know, I couldn't do it without her. Um, and she said, you have to go home. And, and I went home and I ended up in bed for two days. So, but because I'm so open about it, I don't feel judged. People just allow me the time I need to heal and get back to my best self. I am medication free. I'm not advocating for anyone to be medication free. If it works for you, it works for you. I haven't taken medication for years. The way I medicate myself is through exercise and through eating well. It didn't, in hindsight, I was suffering lower level depression in university, but the time that it really presented itself was in my in my late twenties. But but I would say it's made me a better, more empathetic, have a higher degree of emotional intelligence for other people's challenges. It's definitely made me a better manager. Um, I know for a fact that staff members who work for me who have had issues with mental health have said they feel they've been given permission to be honest because I have been so honest and I think as a senior manager and speaking to other senior managers out there we have a responsibility to be open about our own challenges because if we can't be open how do we expect the people beneath us to be open about their challenges and not ringing in saying oh I got the flu today when actually they're struggling with their mental health. Um, hi. Um, in the past decade or more, um, there's been a massive rise in social media. Mm. How do you think this has impacted mental health specifically in women? Um, <clears throat> it's a good question and it's a huge question. It's a, it's such a broad question that and it's, it's something that I get asked quite a lot. Social media does a lot of good. It gets a lot of information out there that otherwise wouldn't be out there. That said, it's not policed. So there's a lot of absolute nonsense out there as well and I think people need to take responsibility to create their own feeds and to follow a broad demographic of people for instance if you're following women follow women who look or look differently so you're not just following all the same type um, not follow people who are breeding uh, negativity and only you know try and try and surround yourself with positivity um, I think Yes, it has had an impact on women's mental health because I think we are now comparing ourselves more than ever. I mean, when I was in my, my 20s, there wasn't social media, so I wasn't confronted with constant images of a me because when people are taking pictures of you and putting it up, you know, the only pictures of me when I was that age were taken on those disposable cameras that people never got developed, you know, so I had no idea what it looked like from behind, you know. Um, so, yeah, it is having a negative impact on... on say, it, could be argued that it's having a somewhat negative impact on women's mental health. At, at women's health, I embrace social media. I have to, I'd be an idiot not to embrace it. And I do love influencers because when we put influencers on the cover, that cover tends to sell very well because influencers are so pleased that they're on cover of a magazine because they see it as tangible. You know, they see it as a, as a forever thing rather than a, a transient social media thing that they then promote it on their social media channels. So I, I love social media in that respect, um, but we're very cautious who we put on our channels and we ensure that anyone we work with influencer wise is credible, is qualified and is not spouting nonsense advice about health and there's a lot of them out there. Hi, I'm Prue. Um, I've just, I'm just wondering on 
if someone was you know wanting to come aboard on the women's health team but they may not agree with the whole dieting and health thing but they still want to contribute as mm. a woman that's gone through issues and wants to empower other women how can they still be a part of the team to, to work for women's health or be yeah um we, we don't firstly we don't include diets um to lose weight per se um our, our whole proposition is empowering women to be the best version of their healthy selves so we have a lot of nutrition content Chris nutrition to make you feel better that said there is nothing wrong with wanting to lose weight if it benefits your health so it's it's a fine line but we don't include certainly in print explicit weight loss content we we it, it's, it's it's always packaged in a way where it is to help you be a healthier version of yourselves um so I don't know what they would be to, to disagree with because it's a holistic look at wellness. It covers mental health, physical health, fitness, um, nutrition, fashion and beauty. Um, I would say this, but I, I don't see what there is to disagree with because at the end of the day, every piece of content in Women's Health is there to empower women to feel better about themselves and to be a healthier version of themselves. Thank you. As someone who wants to get into magazine work and work for a magazine in the future, hopefully, um, do you think it's beneficial to work for a newspaper first? And is it actually possible to get into a magazine sh just straight away? Yeah, so it's definitely possible to go straight into magazines. That's what most people do. In fact, there's not many who come from a newspaper background like me. I'm the only editor-in-chief who... I'm a trained news journalist, got my NCTJ qualifications. Most people go straight into magazines. I think coming from a newspaper gives you a certain work ethic. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble saying this. Um, I'm pleased I went down the newspaper route first. I think I saw more of the world as a result. Um, I think I covered traditional news stories where you learn the skills of, of speaking to all types of people and being in situations on doorsteps that, you know, are not maybe not the most comfortable situations, but you're doing it to get a story. So I, I definitely feel that I've benefited from being a newspaper journalist. First. I still get accused of creating quite tabloid headlines that I get um, talked down on by my team. But, um, but a lot of people do go straight into magazines. And the, the, the way in is the work experience route or pitching direct to the features editors. Um, Hearst are going to set up uh, an initiative where um, via the website anyone can pitch content ideas and it will be taken seriously by the features editors so you, you would have to say I'm pitching this for women's health and pitching this for cosmopolitan whatever but um, that's a way to get yourself in print because <laughs> uh, as someone who recruits I'm not really that bothered about where you went to university or what grades you got what I actually want to see is genuine evidence that you want to be a journalist and you have really gone out of your way to upskill yourself and get as broad spectrum of work experience as possible. Um, thank you for the inspiring talk that you gave earlier, especially covering mental health and diversity. I wanted to ask, as a South Asian girl myself, who is a self-starter, I have my own podcast, Shameless Plug, and everything <laughs> like that. Um, it was so inspiring to hear you talk about self-confidence. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you that from an editorial standpoint, in the position you are now, how do you think companies can diversify their workforce? 
it's, it's happening um, different recruitment strategies so um, companies have employed diversity inclusion managers whose job it is to diversify their workforce so schemes such as the scholarship where I've mentioned where Hearst will be paying for for people to to um, come down to London and pay for their accommodation um, there's also that the, the BBC are, are, are recruiting people who haven't been to university because not everyone can afford to go to university when I went it was free um, if I'd been a year later I wouldn't have been able to go I was the last year to go I know some of you guys are going to um, graduate with, with loads of debt which is an absolute travesty by the way I think it's, it's something we should be ashamed of um, but yeah they, they just need to think differently and smartly about how they're recruiting and less traditional ways of recruiting as well so I know some companies now have, have, have thrown out CVs and, and it's all practical work to apply for jobs I think that's great as well because age discrimination can't come in race discrimination, sex discrimination, if it's simply based on someone's abilities. Claire, thank you so much for that. Um, we've got Hedia with a roving mic who, um, we've got some questions from the audience and Hedia is going to manage that part of it. Hi, I'm Niall, I'm a first year student. Hello. Um, it's really nice to hear you talk today, it was really interesting, thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, your magazine, Women's Health, obviously is very female orientated. Yeah. Um, when it comes to campaigns, do you ever feel the need to be more inclusive and uh, include maybe men into the conversation, non-binary people, transgender people, anything like that? So, men less so, um, because there's Men's Health, who's our, our brother publication, you can't call him a sister publication, so a brother publication. We all sit together, us in Men's Health, and they do amazing campaigns about mental health, etc. So we feel that they're servicing um, men in that respect. We do bring men into the conversation, for instance, Project Body Love, which was a campaign that we launched last year to encourage women to... Um, embrace their healthy bodies and hopefully love them and then some of the content that we created around there was was geared towards men as well um, it, um equipping them with the skills to talk about their their daughter's body for instance so they're um they don't grow up with with lifelong insecurities because our research has um, shown that actually body insecurities start in childhood the non-binary and 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 um transsexual etc Yes, it's something we need to work harder on, absolutely. It's, it's not something that we've, we've, we've done previously, apart from we have a feature in, um, uh, in next week about someone who identifies as non-binary. Um, but it's something that we need to work harder on, and it's, it's something that we will do in the future. Uh, hi, I'm Liam. Uh, I'm a third-year student, and you go on about regional accents. Is there like a, like a pressure to stop speaking your regional accent in like the work? Like, do you need to speak posher or is it do you need do you say you need to act, you speak yourself well i i have very much kept my accent um i know people at the who have completely lost their accents i think that's a disservice to your upbringing i'm very proud of where i'm from i think it sets me apart i think it makes me unusual not unique because there's eight million people in wales but you know <laughs> it makes me unusual so i absolutely wouldn't encourage anyone to lose their accents and i actually think times have moved on now and colloquial accents and regional accents don't come with the same stigma that they did when I started in journalism. There's many more on TV, for instance. When I started in journalism, 
there, there wasn't any local accents on TV, which is why I thought I couldn't be a, a TV reporter, which I actually think I would have been quite good at if I'd gone down that route. But I, I don't think that pressure is there anymore, no. Hi, I'm Devon. I'm a first-year student. Um, you talked with us about how exercise and nutrition helped you transform your life and mental well-being. Yeah. When and how did your passion for fitness begin? And what starting tips can you give to those who aren't sure where to start? Okay. So... I've always been into um, exercise. I played um, netball to a fairly high level in school. I rode competitively in university. So I come from a very sporty family. My father played professional football. My grandfather played rugby, you know. Um, so it's, it's always something that's been there in peaks and troughs. It's it sort of in my 20s when I was a, a national newspaper journalist, and it was quite a drinking culture and keeping up with the lads. It definitely went off to the wayside. I think that probably contributed to my low mental health as well and what, what ended up happening to me when I was hospitalised with depression. But it was when I was in hospital with depression that I really took a step back and looked and thought something has to change. And it's when I thought, right, I need to stop. Not stop, I do drink. That's a complete lie to say stop. But, you know, I need to drink less. I need to look at my nutrition and it's and it's ever since it's been a consistent in my life it is something that i prioritize i went to the gym this morning before i came here believe it or not i'm going to go out later as well to do a bit of conditioning do a bit of cardio but it's it's um and i'm doing that because i've got two young kids so i'm in a hotel in manchester so i'm just going to take advantage of having some time to myself and exercise um my my tip to someone who wants to start out is firstly put your kit on that seems crazy i know but someone very wise said to me said once you put your kit on you'll exercise but like the hardest thing is just getting dressed to go and once you're in your kit to go you're much more likely to step out the front door and then just just find something that you like run in it's not easy don't get me wrong but it is once you've got your trainers it's free just go for a five minute jog a 10 minute jog or on instagram love it or hate it there's loads of free workouts on there you know you can just download one bookmark which i've done um, this morning on the train on the way up i'm gonna i'm gonna do it when i get back to the gym in the hotel baby steps it will make you feel better no one has ever regretted doing a workout you might hate it in the beginning because you get that blood taste in your mouth you know when you you're a bit unfit and you get but you will get over that quite quickly and your fitness will will increase very very quickly especially for you guys in your in your late teens and 20s and i'm testament to how well being fit and eating well can be for your health i had a i tested my epigenetics recently epigenetics are the genes that you can manipulate through your lifestyle and um i'm 41 i'm nearly 42 and it came back that my biological age was 34 and the, the scientist said it was the best result he'd ever seen for someone working in an urban environment with a full-time job and two kids. So I'm living proof that actually eating well and exercising really will benefit your, your health and, and your longevity. So j just do it, it will make you feel better. Uh, hi, I'm Sadie. Um, you'd, in your talk before, you're talking about women's health success despite being in an environment where print journalism appears to be declining. Yeah. And part of that was because of subscriptions. That was the main part. So my question is, do you think the future of journalism is in subscription-based journalism? And if so, what happens to existing journalism platforms now and the future for them? So <clears throat> I wouldn't say uh, women's health success is, is 
purely down to subscriptions. It's, we are growing our subscription base, but we're still predominantly a, a newsstand business model, which is, which is working. Um, the newsstand is a challenged environment, but I believe there always will be a newsstand um, because people like print and they, they like to consume print. Consuming content on a digital platform is a very different experience to consuming it in print. Print is a much more luxurious experience, if you ask me. It's a treat. You can sit down with a cup of tea and a Richie biscuit and read a magazine, whereas on digital, it's, it's a bit more dipping it out. You're, you're less... Um, devoted to the, the content that you're reading, you, you're a bit more distracted by what else is going on on the page. That said, I do think subscription models are going to grow. Um, it's something that's happening in America at the moment. Some magazines are going purely subscription-based, and then what they're doing is they're curating content, especially for the people subscribing. So it's a... It's a um, and there's, it's, it's happened a bit, yeah, the, the Times and the Sunday Times have gone, um, you can subscribe to that now, can't you? And, and they're doing extremely well. And um, Eleanor, you might be able to help me out, some titles in America well, have done it. And with The Guardian, who are yeah. a big supporter scheme, yeah. have finally broken even yeah. after years of losses. Yeah. Uh, and that's largely due down to member and subscription support. Yeah. So it's definitely a growing movement, but I do think there will always be new stand because I think people like to peruse titles. Hi, I'm Adam, a first-year student, and kind of following on from that, you said that it's mostly the physical magazine that sells, but how important is the online presence with stuff like your social media campaign you have Huge. on Instagram? Yeah, hugely. So it's the print product that generates the most revenue at the moment because people are paying for it. So it's £4.50 and people are paying for it. But our digital platforms, the two million uniques every month, are, are hugely, hugely important for the brand footprint. So there's, there's a lot of advertising revenue generated through digital that is only going to grow. And also when we're working with commercial partners, um, uh, deals are sold in as a 360 perspective so it'll be we wanted to look this way in print this way in experiential this way in digital so it's very much a 360 proposition so at Women's Health we're an integrated team so um, at the moment we do have some writers who are purely digital native but that is changing so we all the content creators going to work across all platforms simultaneously so when we look at a piece of content when I approve a piece of content we will look at it and go right how is that looking in print how is it looking in video how is it looking on social how is it looking on digital so we're trying to create content smartly um, but it's servicing all the platforms Hi, I'm Ibra. So basically, like in 2017, there was like a debate between Kathy Newman and Jordan Peterson where he said that the BBC are illegally paying men more than women. Is that really true or not? Are, are the BBC paying men? Illegally paying men more than women. Is yeah. that really true or not? Well, based on the um, Sierra Ahmed case, it yeah. seems that in, certain, in some cases they certainly are. I, I don't work at the BBC, I'm not, I'm not privy to their books and their accounts, but it's a generally held, held belief that men tend to be paid more than women in the media. Um, and, you know, there, there have been two cases at the BBC recently where they've proved, they've proven so. So, yes, I... Because I think it's... 
it's, it's, it's old behaviour that's inherited. It's an industry that's male-dominated, especially in a traditional news environment. And I think women have been penalised for having babies, for taking time off, for taking maternity leave. The way family life is set up, that if the child is sick, it tends to be the women that leaves. And I think consciously or subconsciously, women are penalised for that. Whereas research has shown working mums are the most productive people in the office because they know they have a certain time frame to get stuff done and get out. So, and I think there's, there's, there's a groundswell of, of, of um, opinion coming round to that now and people agreeing with it. But I think the, the BBC in particular is a male dominant organisation. Um, so that culture of, of men earning more has, has perpetuated. And one more thing, how does it make you feel hearing people like Jordan Peterson say that women are more agreeable than men, which makes them p get paid less in the workplace than uh, men, basically? Mm. So, yeah. Well, that's, it's just a massive generalisation, that, isn't it? You know, it's just to say all women are as agreeable as men. Um, my experience of, of being in a boardroom with, with men is that men are the most vo vocal and the noisiest people there, but it's often the women in the room that make the most sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hello, my name's Callum, I'm a third year student. Um, you mentioned uh, class conflict earlier in uh, newsrooms. Um, how would you recommend working class journalists uh, combat middle class ignorance in a newsroom? Uh, should we have thick skin or should we actively combat the issue ourselves? Well, I would say I actively combated the issue. No, don't, don't have thick skin, don't stand, don't stand for it. Don't, absolutely don't stand for anyone um, criticising your background or belittling you or questioning your ability based on your background. This happened to me 21 years ago and I did stand for it initially because I was inexperienced and I sort of believed what they were saying to me when my sort of working class insecurities come in but I, I soon realised that actually I'm a better journalist than a lot of you. I'm getting in front doors, that are over doorsteps that a lot of you aren't getting in. And that's largely due to my background, I think, and my, my accent and my authenticity and how I present myself. So it's, it's what actually got me bullied turned into my biggest strength as a journalist. So absolutely don't go through, grow a thick skin. You, we're all worthy, Def definitely. Hi, I'm Naomi, I'm a first year student. Um, what was it that kept you going and pushed you to continue writing once you came out of hospital? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I didn't want to let depression beat me and I'm a very stubborn person and I, I was determined for it not to define my life in a negative way. That said, I certainly wasn't open about it when I first came out of hospital, I was, it was still shrouded in secrecy. I believe there was a, a stigma around mental health issues that, that some people viewed it as a weakness. Although I read a book when I was first diagnosed um, by a, a doc, Dr. Tim Catifer, I think his name is, and it's called Depressive Illness, The Curse of the Strong. And actually, it's the most determined in society and most susceptible to depressive illness because they're most determined to achieve and therefore more likely to fail, said in, um, said in quote marks. Um, but what spurred me on to be very open about my depression was actually um, three years ago when I joined Women's Health. So 
for all those years, and this happened in my late 20s, up for 10 years, I was secretive about it. I didn't tell anyone. I, I'd had long-term relationships in the meantime and not told them about it. And I'm married now and I have told my husband, but I, I, I just viewed it as something to be ashamed of. And then when I joined Women's Health, I decided that we should have a mind issue in time with World Mental Health Day, which is November. And I thought it would be really powerful to get a collection of women together all high-profile women, all women at the top of their game. So we had Frankie Bridge, but we also had company CEOs, a doctor, we had uh, writers, etc. Um, all speaking about their mental health issues, and I'm talking all aspects, not just professional anxiety. It could be bipolar, it could be split personality disorder, it could be postnatal depression, all sorts. And um, I thought it would be really powerful to hear from all these successful women at the same time talking about how they deal with their mental health issues. And as I was putting this feature together, I thought I would be a complete hypocrite if I'm not honest about my own challenges, because at the end of the day, my picture's in the front of that magazine. So, and I'm arguably fairly high profile. And I was actually somewhat dissuaded from being honest by, by certain people, um, because they said, once you talk about your mental health issues, you will always be the editor who has depression and anxiety. And I still, I agonized over it and I thought, no, I am one of the most honest people you will ever meet. I am a very genuine person. I thought, I have to do this. I have to talk about it. So I did, I wrote about it three years ago in Women's Health and the response I got was overwhelming, literally overwhelming. I had hundreds, if not to this day, thousands of messages um, on Instagram. People coming up to me in the building, saying how wonderful they thought it was that I'd been so honest and I really believe it's, it's, it seems facetious to say it's, you know, it's, it's benefited my career but it's definitely open avenues for me that, um, that I've, I've spoken on the BBC about it, I've been on national radio, I, I've written about it in other publications and I really believe there's this power especially amongst women talking about our mental health issues because as women we do talk and we do reach out, sadly it's a bit different for men men, the suicide rate amongst men is 12 times higher than women because they don't reach out and then they react in a violent way and they end up killing themselves. So I think there's some work to be done amongst men, but, but for women, we, we let's talk, carry on talking, and my, my personal drive to succeed will help me then and it continues to help me now to combat depression. Um, I'm Leighton, I'm a first year student, and um, before you was asked the question about diversity by the panel, but um, it made me think, and I went through um, the um, health team that they've got. Regarding the women's health team and the wider team employed and listed on the website, does the lack of racial diversity concern you as the leader of the brand? Absolutely, it does. The problem that we face is that we do not get enough diversity applying for the jobs, and that needs to change. But I can't give jobs to people who don't apply for them. So. Things need to be put in place to encouraging people from more diverse backgrounds, including race, in, including gender, um, including socioeconomic backgrounds, applying for the jobs in the first place. And this is the big battle, the big challenge that the media face. So, and it's something that Hearst are doing now. They are trying to recruit from more diverse backgrounds. Um, but until those people actually apply for the jobs, I can't give them the jobs. That's Terrific. Thank you so much, Claire. Um, yeah, a big thanks to Claire for coming to um, MMU today and 
everyone here for the questions. We'll be back next week and back with, to the more familiar format with Pete Murray and the crew, focusing again on issues in media law, the courts and ethics. So do subscribe to the podcast for that. And you can search for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed or you'll find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. And that's one word, MMU Northern Quota. But that's it for this week. Remember to tweet us at RightsBang if there are issues from your reading or your lectures that you'd like us to cover in future episodes. And in the meantime, we've been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all the students who've taken part in this. Thank you. Can you just let us know you're here? And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>